everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities Presents Hometown Haunts, the podcast. I'm your host, Kat Cloco. Along with me in the shadows is Christina Wald and Jen Kohler. And if you want to follow us on our social media at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter, at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And like always, we are taking your own personal paranormal experiences ghosts you've encountered, UFOs you've seen, if you've seen Bigfoot barbecuing in your backyard, we want to hear about it. And you can email us at hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. We're also an official podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Find us on iTunes at Cincy, I think it's Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities. Also try looking at Hometown Haunts Podcast. Rate and review us there and also on YouTube so other spooky lovers can find us. Ones that are like you, ones who want to hear ghost stories and urban legends and about the Loveland Frogman and whatever mischief he's up to. There's a link in the show notes. Tonight, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Cassandra Jones. Hi, Cassandra. Hi. So you are the Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at the University of Cincinnati and an affiliate faculty member in Film and Media Studies and Women's Gender Sexuality Studies. You received the Taft Center Research Fellow for 2020 and 2021. Yay. Yay! And during your fellowship, you are working on completing your manuscript, Memory and Liberty liberation in black women's speculative fiction under contract with Ohio State University Press for the new for the new sons race gender and sexuality in the speculative series this all sounds like extremely <laughs> interesting and great deep conversational content which i would love to get into but would it be safe to say that you love sci-fi i do yeah i, I think we could say i'm a fan i am yeah uh, I'm primarily like if it, if we're getting to my deep roots, I'm a Star Trek person oh, for sure. Yeah. But uh, I do, I do love um, a lot of different areas of science fiction. Yeah, but, what got you into loving science fiction? Was well, it just I think my now my family, the family lore is that my grandmother used to watch Star Trek, and I would you know she babysat me a lot so that I would be there watching with her i don't remember any of this but i do remember star trek the next generation you know coming on tv at a sort of pivotal moment of my um like my puberty where i was just glued to the television all the time so i got really excited about about those kinds of stories um and I'd been a big Reading Rainbow fan, so seeing LeVar Burton on TV was great. I loved Whoopi Goldberg. Seeing her on there was fantastic. And um, and then I got really into the novelizations of the show. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was... that was fun and then it it was so it was it was like between the christopher pike novels and star trek the next generation like that maps out basically my early 90s like that's that's where i was doing yeah yeah like i'm gonna be blunt you sound like my husband because everything you just mentioned is stuff that he watched and just consumed as a as a toddler (laughs) no no as an as an adolescent um i mean i know i look like a toddler all day (laughs) he wasn't actually a toddler then no if he was we have problems um <laughs> but yeah it, it's i love le- seeing lavar burton and whenever he pops up anywhere 
Like, uh, I believe it was an episode of Community. And I was oh. just like, ah! Oh my God, that, that, was that a episode f- is so fantastic. And then it's so just, well done. It's yeah. a nice bookend for Glover's role on the series. His response just, to LeVar Burton, just like stunned silence is exactly the way that I've responded to ever seeing him ever anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It, I believe Complete it's a very out. well, like anybody who's a big fan has had that moment. I oh, know yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As she remembers now, pause to remember. Pause. Here comes the dissolve. No. <laughs> yeah i think um so yeah that sort of started um my love of science fiction and fantasy and then it really wasn't until um i got to college i was a french major which is a very odd sort of way to get into science fiction or even african-american or africana studies but I can see the connections, but yeah, there was a lot of, I mean, in French, there was a lot of looking at, um, you know, French colonialism and, and like looking at the sort of history and literature and culture from like places that had been colonized by France. So there was a connection that way. And when I went to, um, when I was in high school, I spent a year in France and the family I stayed with was, um, a Senegalese French family. So I kind of... I sort of dipped in that way. And then I found that I kept writing so much about um, American culture through this kind of French lens that mm-hmm. I decided I would go into American culture studies in grad school. And I hoped, I hoped, although I didn't even know that people, I, I think I'd found one book where um, that was like race and Star Trek. And I was like, what? Whoa. You can write about that? I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. And it took me a while to kind of get, you know, to find the Afrofuturist writings and figure out what my niche was going to be. But that was, that was my way in of kind of bringing it all together was to, to kind of come at it through my love and, and then think about what are some other, like, what are the other Black science fiction texts that are out there? What are they talking about? How can I, you know, what do I have to say about those things? Mm-hmm. And then my new, so the project I'm working on now, um, uh, memory and uh, liberation and, and black women's speculative fiction is kind of looking at mostly, I would say probably four, four authors mainly, um, Octavia Butler, Tanana Rivdu, uh, Nalo Hopkinson. And then there's another, I'm also talking about Jewel Gomez, I guess. And then fifth one is, uh, she's more of an activist, but also writes some some short stories and novellas, uh, Rashida Phillips. Mm -hmm. And all of them, you know, use various science fiction tropes like time travel or alien invasion, you know, um, the the idea of like the the sort of haunted house, all Mm -hmm. of those, all of those tropes show up in their work and are also connected to memory in different ways. And each of them are kind of saying that if we can tap into memory in this particular way, it allows us to have some really kind of great tools for dealing with um, you know, the effects, the after effects of colonization, right? How do we decolonize um, our concept, like the land that we live on, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. And that happens through um, alien invasion of all things, right? So, uh, and that's in, that's in um, 
Nettie Corfor's Lagoon. I talk about that. And then um, also the idea of, I've been writing, I've been working on this chapter and working on this chapter and working on this chapter. It will get finished if I continue writing it. <laughs> but um, it's looking at the, uh, this, this woman in The Good House by Tanana Reeb too, who um, she is a, she's a conjure woman and she angers the gods and unleashes this evil spirit into the world. And the, the spirit like torments her, her town and she ends up kind of banishing it or she thinks that she does, uh, but it kind of possesses her daughter and then kind of goes dormant for a while. Uh, and so this woman decides the best way to save her family from this evil spirit that wants to you know, destroy the family line is to not pass on any of her knowledge. And that oh. works for about a generation or two but then after she passes, her grandson, you know, discovers some of her, her writing and, un, you know, unleashes the spirit again. And so mm -hmm. I really am interested in that about the idea of horror there, that horror oftentimes in, um, especially where Black people concerned in, in movies like Candyman, is oftentimes about remembering like that's when the horror happens if you mm -hmm. say Candyman's name five times in the, five times in the mirror he's going to come back out and he's going to murder you and everybody you know um mm -hmm. and the idea that in that book that it or in that um movie rather that it's a white woman who goes to the projects right she's trying to study Candyman and uh gets in the way of his legacy and then he right takes this kind of revenge so the the sort of moral of the story is don't talk to black people don't try to deal with like help black people, like leave them alone um, with their own kind of, you know, demon haunting them. Uh, and, and that's sort of the way to stay safe. But the good house really flips that idea that the horror um, happens when that line of memory is lost, you know, and yeah. so reconnecting the horror is then the way to kind of, to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting how all those different tropes work uh, in those yeah. different stories. Yeah, it, 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 it does. It reminds me. So I consume a lot of East Asian media because mm. my degree is in East Asian language and culture studies. Yeah. So, mm. and <laughs> it reminds me of a lot of traditional work. We can call it somatic uh, traditional well, traditions that are in Japan or South Korea and a lot of it lost in China, but rekindled in Taiwan mm -hmm. and not the episode for that, but I can see, <laughs> I know exactly where you're coming from, from experiencing that myself. Okay. Not exactly, I guess, but I understand media, you, intent. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. um, but I will say with the list of authors that you, you supplied with us today, it was a wonderful broadening experience because although I have heard of some of these women in passing the one that really taught caught my attention was um Hopkinson because she mm -hmm. brings in the Caribbean folklore into her own writings yeah. and I'm like folklore sold mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I want a brown girl in the ring I think that's probably my favorite of Nalo Hopkinson's work because I saw got... that one recommended a lot yeah that's the you've it it some someone just made a movie out of it that we screened um, last year. Of course, I cannot remember the name of it because last year was like ten years ago. Who knows what happened last year? 
I mean, last year took a decade. You're right. It, it was <laughs> every month was its own year, and it yeah. was just steadily getting worse. You're like, yeah. why? I have no but it was of what happened like, the year before. Like 2019 was good, good because I think that's when Get Out came out, and that really kind of opened people's eyes to the idea of uh, black speculative fiction. And uh, I do want to know, just because I am a comic book nerd, how has the popularity of Black Panther affected media? Oh, that's a good question. Um, mm. I, so when, <laughs> when it was coming out, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of excitement with the, you know, among the sort of crossover. So I'm not a comic I'm not a comic book person and I'm, and I'm not a superhero gal. So, but, but Black Panther was one of the ones that I was like, oh, I'm absolutely going to be there. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to see it multiple times. Like I already know that will happen. I was really excited about it. And so I was excited with all the other people at getting the first looks of what the costume is going to be like. And, you know, the, this is like, this is who has been cast and these are the roles. And I never really personally as a fan had never been able to have that experience of being excited about a comic book character before. So that a lot of people I think came into Afrofuturism fandom through that door. People mm -hmm. who, you know, who had never been interested in watching the 15th Spider-Man version. Right. But now they're going to, but they're going to watch, you know, they're going to watch this one. And I definitely had a very emotional response to that film. The first scene and they're like flying through the, Oh yeah. They fly through the barrier. And then you see Wakanda for the first time. And I legit teared up because I was like, Oh God, so beautiful. The idea of an Africa that had not been colonized, that had been able to retain its own resources and be able to use them in the way that it saw fit and not you know just have it pilfered out and then um be left with whatever scraps to fight over mm -hmm. it was really it was really wonderful and well not only that just being able to retain and just expand on its own cultural ties yeah 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 and i so i think for to kind of get back to the idea of how it's impacted media i would say there's been a lot more interest in telling black stories in science fiction fantasy, especially, I mean, from, from mainstream media sources that, you know, probably would not have wanted to throw a lot of money at that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, can we get money, our money back? Is this really something, do black people want to see these things? I mean, these are similar questions that the same studio heads make about women's movies. Like, are women yeah. actually going to show up to watch this thing? You know, so they found out that yes, black people are interested yeah. in science fiction and it has a crossover appeal. Like everybody's going to go see it. Like, don't, oh you know. Oh my God, everyone did go see it. <laughs> yes, and it was right? wonderful. Oh, so good. So um, that, uh, I, so I think that is really changing. And then I would also say too that an interest, there's now a growing interest in specifically African science fiction. So Nettie Okorafor doesn't refer to her own work as Afrofuturist work. She refers to it as African futurism. So mm. she is uh, a Nigerian American author. And so she really tries to ground her stories in uh, a lot of like Nigerian lore and culture. A lot of her stories take place there. So um, either, you know, in the distant future or, or in the, 
you know, sort of the contemporary moment. And then I think there's been, this happened before Black Panther, um, had been growing, but I think is kind of getting a lot of steam now too, is the, uh, is interest in developing and supporting African filmmakers who are doing science fiction. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. a short film that's out there um, called Pumzi. That's what it's called, Pumzi. Um, that's P-U-M-Z-I. And it's a short film that takes place in like a, you know, a sort of ecologically devastated future where people live underground and um, have to collect their sweat to recycle for drinking water and, you know, that kind Ooh. of thing. Yeah, it's, it's intense. It's also very beautiful. And the woman who uh, directed that film is now working with Nettie Okorafor on a project. And I don't remember which it is because these sort of projects kind of come and go, but I believe it has to, I, I think they're working on it on an Octavia Butler film that oh, they, nice. they want to get together. So, so like supporting filmmakers who are already doing their work and then, you know, kind of bringing them in the loop and giving them more money to, to bring us something really fantastic is, is exciting. Moving on from that particular subject, we, we can go to Tori Mo- Tony Morrison and her story mm-hmm. beloved and how yeah. it has roots here in Cincinnati, which yeah. um, I'm going to admit something. And I admitted this on your doorstep quite embarrassingly this was my first encounter with you crazy redheaded banshee woman <laughs> on on your doorstep petting your dog it was yeah um, Colin was so excited to see human yeah it was that this is a story the story of margaret garner mm-hmm. was one that i am completely foreign to it mm, was a new yeah. crime story it had been recommended to us since the beginning of the podcast it's dark uh it, it's I think Tony, I haven't actually watched Beloved. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it, mm-hmm. but I know of his existence in the right. larger zeitgeist of film. Right. Um, but I just have never watched it. Um, unfortunately, now I'm going to. I know Christina has downloaded the audiobook to listen to while working. Um, and uh, but this is a part of American history that I am personally not good with. Mm. I've been learning it since I graduated high school. As I admitted mm. to you, my high school was terrible at teaching African-American history. Sadly, most What's are. up with that, Northern Indiana? Mm. Um, You're not but alone But I've there. been learning. Hmm? You're not alone there. Though. Most, most high no, schools are pretty but bad. But I that. think a lot of people need to admit that we just don't know. Yeah. But it's deep, it's broad, and it's extremely important to learn about. It's and also fascinating. Like, it's endlessly yeah. fascinating. Because I think sometimes in history, people think that if something didn't, if they don't know about it, that it didn't happen. And, and I mean that in a very generous way, you know, like some people are like, some people are gross about it and they're like, what? That never could have happened because I didn't know. But other (sighs) people, you know, just sort of, it's not in their realm of possible, you know, sort of stories because they had never heard of it before. And that to me is something that I'm endlessly confronted with in reading black history of, you know, from any country is that, wow, we've been there. We've been doing it. You know, there's, there, there is no kind of time in American history when we were not kind of there. I mean, even Mm -hmm. if you're talking about the, from the moment of, uh, 
you know, the beginning European exploration, like the first Spanish explorer had an African man with him. So we're not a part of, um, so much a part of the sort of pre-colonial like colonial period in, you know, what would become the United States. But from that moment of colonization forward, we're absolutely a part and have been. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's so exciting. There's always so many things to find out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, um, I knew a little bit about, about Margaret Garner's story from, you know, I've, I've taught, uh, in my Africana studies classes, like I had taught a little bit about her. Um, but since I'm not a historian, I, um, she comes up, you know, when we're talking about the sort of general backdrop of the, um, the end of, of <clears throat> slavery in America, because it was, I mean, it's an important story for us locally, but it was absolutely a national story. I mean, it was it, a catalyst for the civil war. Oh and yeah. Cincinnati seemed to be just the, I don't want to say guinea pig, but this is where we saw the divisions become so hard and fast that yeah. led to it, just from what I read. Uh, before we dig more into her story, I do want to give our listeners a content and trigger warning. Mm. This is another true crime episode, even though we nerded out about all things sci-fi. I hope you enjoyed that. But the rest of this episode, we're going to be talking about a true crime case that happened in 1856. So I want to give a trigger warning for child death and trauma. Um, I'm going to say, speaking for myself, who is a parent of a toddler who was the exact same age as Mary, this was a very difficult story for me to get through. Um, I can say I cried quite a few times, Mm. but it needs to be told. So I'm not going to give you a number to skip to. I don't want you to skip this. I want you to listen. And I would like you to learn. That sounds a little preachy. I'm sorry. But I think this is an important story to cover. And especially this is Black History Month here in the United States. But I know a lot of our listeners actually are not based in the United States and have absolutely no context for this. So Margaret Garner's story has such an impact on America then and today. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. The, um, I mean, I can kind of start with the, just that, that impact because it continues. I mean, certainly after, um, after the event, poetry was written about it, paintings. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you mm-hmm. are local to Cincinnati, you can see um, one of them at the, the National Underground Freedom Center, you know, downtown. Uh, there's also uh course beloved right that is that is taken almost directly inspired by the events of margaret garner um and also there was an opera i think came out yeah she tony morrison wrote an operetta and a pulitzer prize winning uh music director wrote the music and it debuted in cincinnati detroit and philadelphia to sold out crowds i don't know if you uh have read the broken earth trilogy Mm-mm. but um one of the characters in there also um kills her child and she talked about being inspired by this particular story because she was trying to create a world where the where the characters felt like there was 
that that death was preferable to the kind of life that they were forced to live, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that is exactly the world that Margaret Garner lived in. So Mm -hmm. this, um, this is the story then of Margaret Garner and the infanticide of her daughter, Mary Garner. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of did prepare a little bit of sort of political and social context to sort of help us understand what was happening. Um, This in Cincinnati, even though the story takes place um, in 1856, really <clears throat> there'd already been sort of building of abolitionism in, in Cincinnati for decades. Uh, and there was quite a lot of tension even then around, um, around people who were working to, to end slavery. Uh, there was a growing free population of black people. I think at that time in Cincinnati, they were about 5% of the larger population. Um, So not nearly as strong today, we're about 50% strong today, but um, at the time 5% and growing. Um, Also, there was a kind of national economic downturn that had happened. And similarly, you know, to today, people were making, um, a lot of conservative newspapers were making the argument that abolitionism and this sort of line of progressive thought is destroying America, it's destroying the economy. Look what's happening (laughs) as these people are trying to, you know, black people are coming and stealing white jobs. And, uh, you know, that was, that was really difficult because even though Cincinnati was a free city, it's a border city. Um, mm-hmm. And also we were at the time known as Porkopolis. So yes. we're the, right. We're the, the center <laughs> of like pork manufacturing, pork meat packing uh, and quite a lot of, you know, so we're raising, we're raising hogs, we're slaughtering them, we're selling them at market and we're also selling the kind of offcuts to um bonds people in the south so Mm -hmm. we're making our money off of you know that whole system that whole economic system i mean slavery is uh, you know it was the kind of economic system of the day every everything in america was was based on that that system even if people you know living in the north oh we made textiles you know that's basically what i learned in high school and it's like well who was gathering the raw materials for those textiles because it it was a bunch of enslaved people in the south yes and it was children making it in new england right yeah yeah oh my goodness so that you know we're sort of deeply entrenched in that kind of history and then um and again in around 1841 I've got a couple of stories for you I'm going to try to keep them brief that kind of give Mm -hmm. a little bit uh, of a flavor to to kind of understand the world that's happening right so 19 or in 1840 um Margaret Garner was only seven years old Um, but these things were happening and they only lived about 16 miles out of Cincinnati so it's very likely that a lot of these events had sort of trickled through um through the community and, and probably had reached had reached them. So uh, there were, the black community, as I mentioned, was about 5% of the population, but over the last 12 years from 1829 to uh, 1841 had seen three major mob attacks. Um, so white people really feeling emboldened by these sort of newspaper articles talking about how uh, black people were stealing jobs, um, seeing these growing numbers, seeing the economic prosperity that was happening in the black community. Um, there were 
quite a number of, of attacks. And the one of the largest ones was in 1841. So it started was off- this on neighborhoods that were predominantly black? Well, yeah, it mobs. started, yeah, it started, it was white mobs Ugh. attacking a black neighborhood, right? So- Oh no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this, this reminds me of Oklahoma. Oh yeah, and yeah. that makes me sad. Almost basically the, I mean, this is not- Exact same thing. Yeah, so- I mean, there's a whole, there are so many race riots and they call them race riots, which I think is disingenuous because it's really like white mobs attacking black communities. But mm-hmm. um, the this particular one started with a street fight between a group of Irish folks and a group of black folks. And the black folks won that particular fight and everybody went home. But the next mm-hmm. day, uh, the group of Irish immigrants came back and they were ready for retribution, basically. So they came mm-hmm. armed and they went to the they went to the boarding house where one of the black men that they had fought was was there and demanded that he be released to them from the house. Uh, they were threatening you know, the black neighbors, they were threatening everybody in the house, uh, and the people actually refused to let him out. And so that mob finally broke up, that small group broke up and went home. Uh, but that kind of refusal sort of trickled mm-hmm. through the community. And so what happened was then there were now um, groups of white men uh, would just started randomly attacking any black person they found on the street. Oh, no. Sometimes, sometimes beating them to death. Uh, oh, and that no. happened. Yeah, that happened for a while. Again, the police were not doing much of anything at all at this point. Um, and what happened was eventually they attacked, they found a group of people who were, who were going to fight back pretty hard. Uh, and they ended up um, stabbing their attackers nearly to death uh, and Oof. then ran away. So that, with that, between that and all of this kind of building anti-Black sentiment told the people in uh, the First Ward neighborhood, they were, they were like, okay, we've seen these signs before. This is not the first mob that's come after us. We know what's coming. And unlike uh, some of the earlier uh, attacks, they decided that they weren't gonna leave this time. They were gonna fight back. So uh, the, there's one person in particular who kind of organized uh, the group and he was Major James Wilkerson. He took, he decided, okay, we're going to get all of the women and children out of here. Um, We're going to organize all the men, as many as we can get. They got 50 men together, broke them up into groups. And he really took like a very military style approach. He kind of put them in groups, he distributed guns, and then he assigned them to different areas of the neighborhood. Like you guys stand on this rooftop, you guys get back in this alleyway, you hand behind this building, and we're going to wait. We're going to wait. And if this mob shows up, we're going to fight them. If they don't, great, wonderful. If they do, no, we're defending our home. This is what we're doing. So mm-hmm. uh, across town, this mob is is gathering steam. It's folks from Kentucky, um, some of the, the Irish immigrants, also uh, other like white Ohioans, just uh, generally anti-Black people. They start marching across town in a mob, picking up people as they go, just interested mm-hmm. folks were like, yeah, I feel like, you know, beating some people down. And when they got to the neighborhood, they were between 700 and 800 people strong. Holy smokes. Yeah. Fighting against 50 people, like 50 men with guns. And oh. the because they had, you know, they were taking this organized approach, they actually were able to hold off the mob and they broke up 
and kind of reformed a couple times until finally the white people went down to the river and got a cannon. What? A cannon. They dragged it back to the community and shot this cannon like several times trying to like destroy buildings, killing Where are the police? Nowhere to be found. No, not here, not hanging out. This is like 800 people shooting a can- and this is open warfare this is open warfare right in yeah. the neighborhood and they they were able to this group of 50 men were able to hold them off until about two o'clock in the morning and that's finally when the militia arrived and you'd think yay back up here comes the cavalry you would be wrong because this is black history and that's not yeah i was about to say no that's not the good thing i'm not cheering this development this is not, yeah, no. So what happened was um, they they broke up the mob, they sent them home and they cordoned off the black community uh, and basically kept everyone there prisoner. But <sighs> they didn't stop with that. They went to all the other parts of the town because this, this, this neighborhood had about 43% of the black community living there. So, you know, you've got other places black folks are living. They went to those places, rounded those black people up, brought them back to the neighborhood too. Oh, and kept no. them there until they could pay a bond. What? Yeah, for release. So they had to pay to be attacked. Yeah. What? Yeah, that face. <laughs> the face that you have right now is exactly the face. What? Yeah, that I was making too. Like, it's, it's just egregious. It's egregious, right? What? And so from that, that... This is an interesting development, I think, for a lot of reasons. You know, that sort of frustration that we are, that one, we're under literal attack in this case. Two, there's nobody who is going to come help us. We need to band together and, and work for ourselves. It was really like a kind of um, turning point for the community. They'd already been working together through churches. I mean, again, there's really never a point in Black history when people aren't fighting back. But this is a time when people really band together and put a lot of effort into building kind of institutions in the community. So over the yeah. next like 20 years or so, you see the development of of a high school, two black newspapers, an orphanage. There are um, uh, vigilance societies, which are groups who are kind of working to protect the rights of black people. Um, a number of abolitionists kind of work with those groups. You also see Masonic lodges, you know, those, those mm -hmm. kinds of things where they're really trying to find ways to um, educate themselves to um you know support each other economically you know and and kind of help help pull everyone kind of up together working together mm -hmm. so that was 1841 um also in 1841 there was uh what was called there was a law that happened in ohio called the state v far decision which is is fairly important for the story and also just mm -hmm. kind of his background information this law suggested that or or made it clear that any enslaved person who had been sent to a free state by their owner was um immediately and automatically made free by stepping into a free state right uh, and that's that's a huge deal um particularly in Margaret Garner's case, because in 1840, when she was seven years old, she did come to Ohio. She had come to Cincinnati um, and was, was there to care for um, her mistress's children, but was mm -hmm. 
had actually, you know, stepped foot in Ohio. So that became a big part of her defense later. The, yeah. And and also, and also as you know, part of that kind of that fabric of division that you were talking about, where, you know, the like slave states and free states are kind of being pitted against each other around this, this kind of economy of, of human beings. It's so gross mm-hmm. to talk about it that way. But, you know, that so people are, are coming here and just and, and abolitionists are like, hey, you know, you're free now. I mean, they're not going to tell you over there. But now that you're here we can help you out so that mm-hmm. was um that was that's a fairly large development and then of course the big one i think that everyone knows about in 1850 is this fugitive slave act right yeah. so that's the law that happens um, passed by congress it's a national dictate that says that now u.s marshals are capable of finding um bonds people who have run away uh, no matter where they run to uh you can find them you can bring them back you have the jurisdiction to kind of do that Mm-hmm. So that, that was, that was a giant idea. And also in 1851, you have Uncle Tom's Cabin that's published. Yeah. So an anti-slave narrative, again, also inspired by, um, by Harriet Beecher Stowe's time in Cincinnati and, mm-hmm. you know, what she saw at plantations and, and among, you know, abolitionist groups. So all of yeah. that is kind of a backdrop. The last yeah. story I want to share as backdrop is another story that I think is one of the most brazen and amazing slavery escapes that I've ever Ooh. heard of. Now, um, I, I've the the number one slot for me is always and forever going to be Henry Box Brown, who packed himself in a way and shipped himself north, like <laughs> through, through the mail. I heard that story. Yeah. That's number one. That's always going to be my number one. But this one, I think, is my number two, and it happened right here in Cincinnati, which I think is pretty great. So it's the, the escape of the 28. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Because it has to do with the funeral, a funeral. Yes. So I love that one. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the, so 28 enslaved people uh, escape and in order to get through the city unnoticed, because how are you going to hide 28 people all at once? Mm-hmm. Dress them up put them in a caravan of carriages and wagons and you just move really slow through the city and they'll pretend like they're on their way to a funeral and it just so happened that cincinnati has now an integrated uh cemetery right the very first one and it happens to be on the north end of the city in Mm -hmm. what is now north side so they slowly move through the city and they get there and then oh they just keep going and they head yep. to into college hill and you know to parts unknown they and they make their way to canada and they end up finding freedom but yeah. it's it's kind of amazing i think one of the things so not only is the like people are escaping in large numbers in these really dramatic ways but you also have this is i think a really important detail is the reward money for capturing them so mm-hmm. if you were to give a tip, even a little tip that helps lead to the capture of the 28, you would be given $1,000. Whoa. In today's money, that's like $33,000. Yeah. For a tip. Yeah. And then if you, a cap, if you captured them and, and brought them back, $9,000, it's $300,000. Oh my goodness. And all the people who helped them, not one of them broke. That's really, that's amazing dedication to be like, no, this is what's right. And no amount of money is going to change that for me. 
Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty impressive. So, you know, between all of those things, like, yes, there's this really intense tension and violence um, in Cincinnati. There's also, you know, the sort of literary tale of escape and the idea that you can find people who will help you. There is this larger community of abolitionists who are ready and willing to get you to new places. I think that part of that, um, I think, made its way down to Margaret Garner. And her actually her mother um, in sometime in the 1840s had had made some mention of running away herself mm-hmm. but was not was not able to escape in fact margaret herself was used was kind of used as sort of a collateral kind of system mm. where it's like if you if you even think about running away i'm selling your daughter i'm selling oh, your no. daughter south and that kind of forced her to stay so it's you know it was running away was in the air it was it was mm-hmm. something that that had been happening. And, and I'm not entirely sure what the catalyst was for Margaret Garner to run away. Um, you know, what the very last straw was, I would, I would love to find that out, but I mean, it's already, it's already. That's so one gruesome. of those. Yeah. It, the reading through the accounts and even the newspapers from the 1850s and even accounts today, the thing that bugs me a lot is the fact that Margaret has no voice. Yeah. We, we don't hear her at all. We hear mm-hmm. As much as the abolitionists were great, damn, did they get in the way of talking. They they were just like, we're just going to answer for you every question. Like what you had for dinner, we're going to tell them. When you go to the bathroom, we're going to tell them. It it was just kind of never let her really speak. There's only a few sentences out of the, what is it, the two weeks court trial. And then that she ever utters about anything. And Mm -hmm. then that was even documented really and, and she we died see this so with a, soon she after. died so soon now robert her husband there's a little bit more about him but yeah not yeah. a lot either no yeah i mean she's you know two years after the event she dies of typhoid fever so even if you know there and there was interest you know maybe we would have heard more from her later in life but that just was not an opportunity we had and it's a shame it is a real shame because it does happen so much in any kind of slave narrative from the time period there's almost always at the introduction of any book an opening by a white abolitionist who is there to verify the claims of the story you know because we can't possibly believe what happens if we're just listening to black people we need a white person to to give a thumbs up first so that is you know that's that's definitely a frustrating point that happens a lot and and these and it happens almost to this day in ways oh yeah oh yeah it sure does I mean, I think that part of the reason why I'm so drawn to the the Margaret Garner story and why I think it's so important for us to think about even now is that we're, we're still kind of, I mean, we still have to say that Black Lives Matter. Like that is still an argument that has to be made. Like, nope, we're not dispensable. We're not disposable people. Like, you know, we, we, we're important, you know, our stories Mm. matter. And that is, um, and when we tell our stories, our stories should be believed. It shouldn't have to take 50 people murdered before someone listens to, you know, someone being like, oh, there's a problem with police brutality here, you know, or, or, or to have like, you know, the, 
as much as I really appreciate this, there was what it was uh, the summer. There was like the line of like white moms or something. Oh yeah, the it was it was all the white moms and other um, supporters. I don't yeah. remember their name either. But it they was were like bright pink, didn't they? Or yeah, some fluorescent color. I mean, I I. I I applaud, I applaud their actions. I do. It, um, what, what frustrates me is the need for them to be there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? To be like, oh, you, it's less likely that you'll shoot us. So we'll stand here. It's like, thank you. But also we should not have to, that should not have to be something that we have to do. Um, and yet it is. I mean, that's, that's sort of the reality of it. Uh, so without getting too far ahead of myself, I think it's, it's fairly clear since I've talked about kind of the, the different like sort of newspapers here, the mm-hmm. ways that the story is taken up after the fact. So Margaret Garner um, becomes in some ways uh, a, a, an image for, you know, the, the pro-slavery movement. They can say, look, this woman killed her child. Um, slavery is necessary. It is a, uh, you know, sort of, a benevolent evil it needs to happen but black folks when they're not being controlled are just basically animals you know so there's that argument and then there's the other like abolitionist argument they're like mm, okay actually this demonstrates just how absolutely terrible the system of slavery is that a mother mm-hmm. is willing to murder her child rather than have her return to slavery i mean that um that that really speaks volumes about about how bad it was for her to to make that choice in the end oh yeah so um i guess i could talk a little bit about her life as a as a young person there are there are a number of references that i can sort of share with you if you want to link to them um so margaret garner herself was born in 1833 uh her mother was priscilla but mostly went by scylla as her name um and sort of widely assumed that her father was um john pollard Gaines, mm-hmm. um her the sort of white owner um she lived on maplewood plantation which is in boone county kentucky and like i said about 16 miles away from cincinnati uh, and there were another a, a, a number of other sort of small plantations in the area and and a fairly strong black community amongst the enslaved people. So they had the kind of freedom of movement, at least to kind of move around between the plantations, get together for church on Sundays, you know, big holidays like Christmas, they could get together. Mm -hmm. Um, If they had uh, tasks that needed more hands than they had available where they lived, they, you know, could team up to do different projects. Um, And that's where uh, Margaret, who went as Peggy, um, met her, met her, her soon-to-be husband or would-be husband, Robert. Mm-hmm. He worked on another farm kind of down the road. Uh, and they they lived together. As I mentioned before, too, from the age of seven at least, you know, she had been put to work caring for for children. Yeah. So, you know, this she this was I, working in the home as opposed to out in the field. Yeah, yeah. She was, and that's that was the case for a lot of light-skinned black folks. Um, and and that was that was certainly her idea and also the idea too that she's like somehow inherently violent hates children or something it's like eh, she spent most of her life caring for children so that is just a blatant lie um mm-hmm. but she was um when 
when John Pollard Gaines sold his plantation to, now some people say his brother, some people say his son, and I am not entirely sure. Yeah, this is where the great reporting of the 19th century kicks in and just muddles everything. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) kind of comes in. But uh, his his name, we can at least say we know his name is Archibald Kincaid James or or Gaines or A.K. Gaines. Um, And Margaret becomes a gift for uh, A.K.'s wife um, as a sort of like personal servant to keep, you know, around the house and help her out with things. Mm-mm. So, yeah. So again, I mean, you know, just these casual ways that, that the, you know, these people are like dehumanized, right? You were just simply property. Like, oh, here's a gift, this person. I, I was just thinking, hey, honey, I got you a gift. Here's a person, you know, as you just said. Yeah. But yeah. So, mm. so while I don't Mm-mm. necessarily know quite a lot of her details, and there are a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of scholars who've done this work, I think we, we can say that by the time she reached Cincinnati in 1856, she was fairly, she had a lot of scars um, on her forehead or face. So she had been beaten severely enough to leave scars. Um, mm. She had, she was pregnant with her fifth child. She was wow. only 22 at the time. And uh, at least two of those were extremely light-skinned. Mary herself was said to be almost white in appearance. Um, And they were widely believed then that, uh, or it was speculated that at least one academic, I know for sure Nikki Taylor's talked about this, but even Lucy Stone at the trial, who was an abolitionist, was like, "Um, look at their faded faces. (laughs) Like, they are definitely they're definitely like uh they're like their their parentage involves white people which speaks to this sort of like horrendous degradation that black people have um had been uh put yeah had suffered under under slavery so um well it it's just kind of like this invisible thing it's obvious the parentage was him yeah like looking at the rosters he was the only adult white male on maplewood (laughs) gee i wonder how genetics works like yeah yeah oh magically she just keeps having these super light-skinned babies and and she may have been a product of rape and that may have been a thing too probably was well get this either way like her i mean we can we could definitely say that it's rape because she's not able to give consent under the mm-hmm. laws of the day like you can't you know you're either bribed to have sex through it's like oh i'll give you better food or i won't sell your children away or whatever or you know the threat of violence or actual violence is used whatever you whatever is happening here it's still coercive you know because they don't have the ability to say no really mm-hmm. um but you know if we're thinking about her dad her biological father being john pollard Gaines and um you know ak either being her his son or his brother i mean she's either being raped by her brother or her uncle her uncle one of the two like either way like this is this is not an ideal situation so we know that she was raped repeatedly we know that she had been beaten at least once you know savagely enough to sort of leave scars yeah because i think there was a it said that there was a tree from all the whippings that she had gotten on her back. Basically all the scarring had branched out to look like a tree in one of the accounts I read. I'm like, that's just horrific. 
Yeah. So she left with Robert, um, her husband, uh, their four children, she herself being pregnant, Robert's father and his wife. And then there were a number of other enslaved people from different plantations in the area who all kind of left at the same time. So there going to be about 17 people together. Um, Robert stole a horse. He also stole a gun uh, and they made their way to the Ohio River, which was frozen solid because it was January. And they were able to cross, they left the horse behind, they crossed on foot which I can't even imagine. Grandparents, babies. I mean, the children were, the oldest was six. The, yeah. The, the other... murals don't do them justice. Like, just, just imagining parents, grandparents, like you said, and the kids toddling along on yeah. uneven ice. Yeah. Could ah. fall through at any moment. Brown, yeah. freeze to death. Right. But this is how, you know, how strong the push is. They have to, they have to get out of there. They have to leave. So they are um, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two and a half-year-old and a baby in arms, like Mm -hmm. walking through, you know, the, I mean, and it was snowing at the time. So it could potentially be a night like tonight, you know, that's like heavy snow, cold as can be. And they're making their way. And this is a 16 mile walk, which according to MapQuest would take about five hours. And that's, that's walking along the highway, which they were absolutely not walking along major roads. I mean, they were backwoodsing it to, to stay hidden um, as much as possible. And they got to, they were crossing over to find um, her, Margaret's uncle, um, Joseph Kite who mm-hmm. lived with his family um, and his son, Elijah Kite and, and Elijah's family, um, who were themselves actually fairly well known um, as like both in black circles and in white circles, because they'd had some kind of interesting run-ins with the law. Do you know, did you I, come across I'm not that? that familiar with, I knew that he worked with Le- Levi Coffin, which yeah. meant mm-hmm. that they certainly got into some shenanigans around Cincinnati. Um, to put it lightly Um, but I didn't get too deeply into their history no so Joseph also had worked in um, had worked whatever was enslaved in in Kentucky uh, but had managed to buy him by himself away from his enslaver Um, he paid for freedom for his children uh, and his wife but his son Elijah who was older was married himself and had his own child he was working towards he'd like come come to a, an agreement had had forged a contract with the slave owner to buy elijah but before they could complete that contract elijah ran away with his family oh and managed to hide out kind of in in columbus area for several years uh, and i think finally came back to cincinnati around 1851 oh, okay. uh, so about five years before before all this had happened Uh, But he also, during that time, it's interesting because his former slave owner decided instead of using the Fugitive Slave Act to try to get him back, decided to sue Joe, um, Joe Kite in court as a sort of a kind of property violation, right? That we had a contract, you were going to sell me this person, this person disappeared, Um, I never got my money. Uh, So you, you know, it's sort of property theft or something like that. Um, But... The uh, I think John Jolliffe, 
who uh, was an attorney later in Margaret Garner's mm-hmm. case, uh, is is also like as an abolitionist works with works with both of the kites and says actually no his argument is that because this contract was um created in ohio and all sales of um of slaves or anything having to do with slavery is illegal here this is a null and void contract nobody owes anything Hmm. and so that was kind of the end of the story so slave owners obviously pro-slavery folks were really infuriated by that decision so you know this is sort of a well-known um couple of people so when they get when they roll up they left they walked all through the night they finally arrive at the kite's house around four o'clock i think in the morning Right. They managed to they get it. They get inside. It's cold, freezing. They put the babies to bed. Uh, and then Elijah decides he's going to he's going to ride off and go talk to Levi Coffin. Right. Mm-hmm. He needs to find his Quaker friend who can hook him up with other abolitionists in town and get this family moving. The other seven or there was a group, as I mentioned, of 17. They kind of split up when they got to Cincinnati and kind of went their own ways trying to get to Canada. Um, and because so many had gone at the same time, there was a U.S. Marshal slash slave catcher in, in Kentucky who ended up working with, um, ended up working with the Maplewood plantation owner, uh, the Gaines and Thomas Marshall, you know, Roberts, mm-hmm. slave owner to, to find them. And he was focused more on them than he was on the other people. So it actually gave the other slaves a... The other- yeah like a head start they could they could get away faster um but unfortunately you and you'd think too like now when we think oh it's kind of um i guess it doesn't seem so odd that someone might be caught so quickly in the age of you know all the surveillance technology and whatever but this is a time before phones like how do you even where would you even know to look how could they how could they get caught so quickly um so they've been there what's his name went off to uh elijah went goes off to talk to levi coffin and has gone that was about a three mile walk round trip but he was gone Hmm. for for a couple of hours levi had a plan he was like right need to get out of here up the river there is a group of quakers and uh free blacks they have a community they'll hide you they can move on from there but you should go as quickly as possible because you really don't want to be moving with this many people through the city during the daytime and it's Mm -hmm. january so it still could be reasonably dark around seven o'clock you know uh in the morning Mm-hmm. So they still had some cover of darkness to work with. So by the time he gets back, it's about eight o'clock. It's exact moment when a U.S. Marshal shows up to, to start scoping out the kite house. They know mm-hmm. that um, they're related to Margaret Garner um, and, and they begin watching. And so, yeah, the question is, how did they get there so fast? How could they possibly yeah. know? And there were a couple of really tragic things that happened. One, um, as I mentioned, Margaret was the personal servant to, um, you know, to the white woman at her plantation. And that woman happened to wake up in the middle of the night and called for Peggy. Oh, no. And she wasn't there. So she wakes up the whole house, gets everybody going. They start searching the grounds. And by two o'clock in the morning, they were already on horseback. The fastest horse he had was already riding to go get a U.S. Marshal and to make their way into Cincinnati. 
I think by four o'clock, the same time that Margaret Garner and her family were arriving at the Kite residence is the same time that the that Gaines and that other group of people were getting to the courthouse, you know, waking people up and being like, we need a warrant to go do this, you know, to go arrest, Mm -hmm. arrest these people. We need more U.S. Marshals to help us get, get our people back. So they didn't have a lot of time to waste. I mean, they're really like right on their heels with maybe a couple hours difference. And Mm -hmm. The, so by eight o'clock, as, as Elijah's coming back with this plan to leave, is right as uh, other yeah, folks are the marshals were outside the door and they um, waiting, kind of waiting for backup. Uh, and uh, the inside the house, there was what I imagine was probably fairly chaotic. They started barricading the doors. Um, and refused to let the marshals in. One of them walked around the back of the house and looked through the window and saw Robert and Margaret hiding under the bed. So he opens the window and climbs in the window. Robert uh, and he get into a fight and Robert shoots his pistol at him, uh, hitting him in the face and the arm. And he kind of like stumbles back out uh, to wait for for more arrivals. And then this is kind of the the sort of most tragic time, right? So they've the whole family is there. They are so close to freedom. They're, you know, they're they they're on the cusp. Um and the whole family is they're barricaded, like they have guns, they're ready to fight, ready, and this is when Margaret decides that it's better for my children to be dead than to be returned to slavery. And so she decides that she's going to kill herself and her children. Uh, and that's the way that this is gonna end. So she, um, Elijah was a hog butcher. So there was a butcher knife handy and she mm. used that to cut her daughter's throat, Mary, who was two and a half. Um, and she injured her other children uh, but wasn't able to kill them and wasn't able to kill herself before, you know, all the kind of chaos of the house, the door broke open and the U.S. Marshals arrested everyone. Uh, and it was just insanely tragic. And this is a national news story, of course, for all the reasons we talked about before. Um, usually in, in a case like this with a fugitive slave, really it would have been maybe like a day, like a, you know, an afternoon, a couple of hours trial, but this out, this trial, as you mentioned, can't last for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, during that time, the question wasn't whether, you know, she had murdered her children or not. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't the question. The question is how do we charge her? Is this a case of property or is this a case of murder? And those things are very, very different, you know, because if we're looking at this as a property case, then we're talking about she has she has damaged property. She, you know, will be returned to slavery. If this is a murder case, then she has killed a human being who's not just, you know, a piece of meat or a chair, like an actual human being has died. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to treat her children like humans then that has wide-ranging implications for how we treat black people in america Mm -hmm. um so the the kind of arguments went back and forth um 
about that and ultimately unfortunately she it it was kind of tried as a um a property case but like i said that court case went on for two weeks and the judge himself deliberated for an additional two weeks Mm -hmm. two weeks like he had he was like nope sorry i need two solid weeks to think about this because of what what this means so it was um it was a really important trial and unfortunately you know it really i mean the whole thing is so tragic right not only the events, but the outcome yeah it's so i believe it's still one of the longest uh slave cases debated in court i think in american history i i didn't see anything that lasted longer than a month no yeah but it it it, it, this is that's so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and uh, i it it, you don't have to be a parent to be to mourn over the fact that a woman needed to be found guilty of murder to be considered a human that is Mm -hmm. so disturbing to me Mm -hmm. it 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 i don't know how to eloquently phrase my anger and my sadness and despair Mm -hmm. hearing about this and it it uh, i don't know It, it, it it again it speaks to i think exactly the sort of place that we're in right now where it's like yeah. oh unless you are a sort of perfect angel who has lived their life perfectly that's the only way that people will mourn you if you're if you're killed by the police right uh, just you know so and then even then some people will still find an excuse for why that person should die right so we've got um there's um right Eric we have Garner, george who, floyd who was screaming out for his mom as he's being crushed oh yeah yeah george and, floyd is what maybe like maybe past a 20 like a fake 20 dollar bill needs to yeah. be held on the ground with the knee on his back for seven minutes until he dies yeah or i mean any of the number like oh you're selling lucy cigarettes i guess you should be murdered oh you yeah. legally are allowed to carry a firearm in your car and you're with your you know your wife or girlfriend and and your small child oh uh it doesn't matter i'm still gonna shoot into the car and kill you like but don't forget about the dude that was in cincinnati who got gunned down because he didn't have a front license plate and guess what got repealed last year front license plates yeah. we don't need them in the state anymore yeah and this man got killed over that right or um the the woman who was the emt who was shot in louisville yeah oh yeah yeah she was just Breonna sleeping Taylor. Yeah, she was sleeping. She was sleeping in her bed with her boyfriend. In her own freaking house. Right? And can you imagine, like, what would, how are you expected to do with this? Like, no, not, like, some people burst into your house in the middle of the night and you're not going to shoot them? Like, what? I, I, I don't, I mean, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And then the idea, too, is that, that if the only way, and I remember this very clearly with Trayvon Martin, right? That, oh, Trayvon was no angel. And like, because you'd have to be a perfect angel in order to, for this to really be a tragedy. And like, we, we don't demand the same of white criminals, not even white criminals, you know? Like we go to endless lengths to, to humanize people who shoot up schools. Or, you know, what was, what went wrong in this person's life? And we show them in their high school graduation photo, not, mm-hmm. you know, whatever mugshot we can dig Terrible. up. Terrible, yeah. 
you know, so, so those, I think the ways that the press continues to attribute humanity to black people and white people in uneven, you know, oh, it's grossly uneven is, is really, is I think reflected even in, in this case, you know, we can see. Yeah. Like we, we've covered two true crime cases before this and both were women at different times. Last week was, um, Anna Marie Hahn, who was a serial killer here in Cincinnati. And the other one was uh, Edith Klump, who was murdered a, her lover's wife in, in 1958. Mm-hmm. And the way that these women played the media to their advantage is such a, it, the opposite of what happened to Margaret. It's, it's, it's grossly this is it's gross like edith clump played herself as this vixen almost like chicago that the that musical yeah yeah that was her roxanne hart was edith clump and um and she's known as the killer seamstress because she was a seamstress who who just offed her lover's wife but it and i'm just looking at them and really like um arsenic annie or anna marie Hahn was only like 50 years maybe after this Hmm. so and and just how she gets played off now she was german she was a german immigrant so you got a little bit of a a dichotomy there with uh how she was portrayed in cincinnati versus any african-american citizen but still it was she she killed five men wow she poisoned one guy's beer that was the earlier reference i made for our listeners Hmm. but um yeah just no it's it's completely lopsided yeah so the last the last piece of the story is that she was um meant to be she was sent back to kentucky um to return to slavery she and robert um and and their remaining children and she was going to be extradited back to ohio to be tried for murder but uh she couldn't be found because for extradition because Gaines kept moving her around the state. He refused to give her up for trial. Uh, so she ended up being sold to, Gaines sold her um, and her youngest daughter to his, um, his brother in the South, uh, Louisiana. And they were put on a, on a riverboat and sent South. Now, there are conflicting stories about what happened on the riverboat. Most people tend to agree that it hit another riverboat um, Mm -hmm. and started to sink. Some people claim that a fire broke out during that process, um, and that kind of um, distracted the guardians. So some say that she let her baby daughter um, slip into the waters to drown. Others say she was thrown overboard. Both of them were thrown overboard and the baby drowned, but she was saved. Uh, Whichever way it happened, Margaret did say after that she was happy that the baby had drowned because, um, you know, she wasn't going to have to to live in slavery. So she was free, ultimately. Um, And that's, I mean, that that's kind of the tragic story. Right. Yeah. She ultimately, so 
And, and she herself, as I said before, dies. Um, and it's not clear what happened to Robert or the children. Um, you know, I'm sure the historians have done that work. I was not able to um, find it myself. And <sighs> only thing that I found was that he ended up um, getting freed in 1862, fought in the Civil War, and returned to Cincinnati to Thomas, oh. which oh. was his uh, first oldest son with him and Margaret. And Thomas had been left in Ohio. Um, so, uh, I, and he lived in Cincinnati. I do not know where he is buried. I, um, and unfortunately I could not find the burial records for Margaret or Mary. Um, I am unfortunately not surprised by this Mm. and I can only imagine that Mary ended up in what is now, um, Cincinnati music hall because that's where our orphanage and, uh, Potter's field were at that time. Everything oh, revolves oh, around okay. the Cincinnati Music Hall. Like, yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, I do know it, there's it, a there's a plaque about um, Margaret Garner uh, in Covington on Mainstrasse. So there's there's some recognition there. Um, mm-hmm. The last, I guess, the very last quote that I would share, which I think is a good one, is from an editorial in Chicago Tribune um, in February sixth, eighteen fifty six, that. Um, this is a quote here. When a mother can draw a knife across the throat of her own child to ensure it freedom in heaven, it's time the slave owner, the slaveholders should pause and war against a system which debases every human being connected to it. You know, so it was a really powerful statement that really was in a lot of ways, um, a kind of catalyst for, for ending slavery. Like if this is the yeah. ends that we're going to, we, we cannot continue to support the system hmm yeah well with that christina and jen just like a good old seance will you come to the table to speak to us we welcome back ladies you. yes we're back <laughs> okay first before we get real heavy i have to say cassandra the whole reason i love sci-fi is because of star trek next generation and will wheaton i was an i loved reading rainbow loved Uh, it and the star trek episode like crossover episode yes and then add lavar burton into that as jordy i loved jordy and um i want to you probably know this but he has a uh lavar burton reads podcast where he reads stories and Mm -hmm. it's like oh my god it's my childhood all over again (laughs) so i just wanted i i loved that you said that yeah yeah (laughs) because yeah same reason i love (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi now this was i mean this is a really (laughs) yes yes yeah this was a really fascinating i I mean uh you know hearing all the details of the story and what i was reading um and one thing uh you know uh, arcing back to the 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 topic of the show um Toni Morrison added a paranormal aspect to her retelling of the story, which was really interesting. Yeah, right. The idea that that's um, kind of what a the idea of like the haunting presence that will not be forgotten. And I really love how she names the plantation that um, that's 
that her character comes from Sweet Home. And mm-hmm. the idea of like the sort of disconnect between this idea of like, oh, this happy kind of bucolic place and the realities of like of slavery, I think is is something that we still struggle with. I mean, the fact that I was looking up um, Maplewood Plantation to see uh, if it if it was still kind of in existence and it's not it's not entirely I came across a list of all the other places in Kentucky the plantations that are still in existence and so of the this is sort of I mean whitewashed literally I suppose in this um you know, so just, this becomes a beautiful landscape take pretty pictures yeah that that's one of the things that really irks me is uh, seeing these plantations used as wedding venues. I mean, it, it seems like there is, you know, this is just, you know, I, I think the thing that's interesting about this story is that how many untold stories are there? Millions. There has to be. You know, oh, yeah. um, and, and stuff that will never come to light of treatment of people you know, um, where you described her having, you know, the scars on her back and everything like that, mm-hmm. how, I mean, it seems like, you know, there's so many places that are fractured by this still, like it's still, um, even if it's not, you know, it, yeah. it, it's still woven into our history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, neo-slave narratives are an entire genre of writing that are an attempt by by authors like Toni Morrison to kind of reconstruct that history. Octavia Butler's Kindred is, um, you know, is is the one I'm most familiar with because I love her work mm-hmm. so much. And it's the only one of her works that she refers to as kind of a grim fantasy because there's no science fiction element whatsoever. Like her character, Dana, just magically appears in the past um, and has to sort of reckon with the this this history that is both, you know, the history of America, but also her own kind of genetic history. You know, this is her white slave owning ancestor that she's forced to save repeatedly. Um, and, and also in a terrible twist that actually reminds me of this story quite a lot, um, she needs to convince her ancestor to have sex with Rufus so that she herself can be born. Oof. Like, her wow. her you know has to, like she has to take that on and like submit for the you know sort of greater good of our family um and at the same time like the minute this child is born who becomes you know this ancestor to dana that character um kills herself right so it's another kind of moment where sometimes the only choice you have, you always have agency, you always have a choice, but sometimes the only choice you have is death. Mm-hmm. And I think that that question comes up a lot when we're talking about these really, really restrictive, oppressive situations where our choices are so severely limited. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that, you know, comes up in The Handmaid's Tale, for instance, right? That's another place where we see this really oppressive regime. And one of, um, you know, the person who lived in Offred's room before her, who was, um, is, has, had killed herself. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that was the only escape. And that becomes kind of a moment of celebration for a Fred knowing that that, that escape had been possible is possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This story um, reminds me of actually two other stories. One would be the movie Life of Pi, which is mm-hmm. you're wondering, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it it's a movie about... about a young Indian boy who finds himself on a um, on a dinghy with a tiger and with right. a bunch of different animals. And as you go through the movie, I guess spoiler alert: they weren't other animals; they were other people. And to be able to <laughs> deal with the trauma, he made them animals. And you're left mm. kind of wondering who the tiger was and all that. Um, very good movie go watch it but also what the first thing i thought of was the very special mash episode where you have the vietnamese women or sorry the korean woman with the chicken and i don't know if you know this story or seen this episode at all but the Mm. it's a woman who is on an escape um, they're assisting an escape of South Korea or Korean people because um, MASH takes place during the Korean War. And uh, her, the chicken starts clucking and they are trying to tell her to be quiet and to quiet it. And she finally breaks its neck. And I think it's one of the last episodes of the series. And it turns out the chicken was not a chicken. It was her child. And she Oof. ended up having to smother it for them to get to safety and i feel very much like the writers of that particular episode had found margaret's story because that reflects it so much and uh, putting it with the wartime in korea at the time um it managed to transfer the grim reality of what thousands millions of people have lived through Mm-hmm. and the terror that goes with it and the despair and how distraught she was to save everyone and that that's what struck a chord with me and i'm like this goes with that fictional narrative but this happened to this woman she lived this life mm-hmm. yeah. she saw Thanks. so much shit that she didn't want to see her own daughter live through that you know yeah either one of them mm-hmm. so yeah so uh what are the differences in the story from our narrative that we've seen in, in media? And is there another narrative of the story uh, that, that is sort of vocal tradition? Um, uh, that makes sense. The, well, <laughs> yes. Um, so when I've heard uh, Black folks tell the story, it usually is um there's some reference the version of the story is not that they were both thrown overboard but that margaret garner makes the choice to drop her her infant into the water Mm -hmm. um that is a sort of another moment i guess of agency for margaret where it's not this kind of like calamitous accident but her being able to kind of carry out her will um as you know as her as that is so um, I say that I would say that's the the only real difference. Um, in uh, in Beloved, she's she's tormented, um, you know, kind of tortured by that history. Uh, so you know, there's there's kind of that idea too, 
where um, in, again, in black tellings of the story, there's an attempt to, to kind of get at the interiority of Margaret. You know, what was she thinking? What was she feeling? How did, you know, instead of so many, other than this sort of handful of slave narratives that we have, I mean, there are just, you know, thousands of people whose stories we never really hear. What, what were their lives like? And we, we have this kind of critical distance with history, right? That we, these are things that happened in the past. And oftentimes we think about how different they must've been from who we are. But one of the most interesting things about history for me learning it is how learning just how similar their lives were to mine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I can kind of, you know, I, I'm, the technology I have didn't exist at the day, but the similar human circumstances, the similar sets of feelings and motivations were there. And what, what would that must have felt like? You know, what would a person in that situation, how would they respond? So I, I think that's probably one of the main motivations in those kind of neo-slave narratives is to get at that inside, that interiority, that that set mm -hmm. of feelings. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, Toni Morrison was talking about researching and, and uh, trying to find reference for what they used to put a bit on people, like a horse, like they do for a horse. And she said she couldn't find any pictures of it every anywhere. And um, I think it's it's used in the book and she had heard about it, but there were no like descriptions or drawings of it. So you're trying to write about something that is just something now, you know, you know, Kat and I tend to, like I have to illustrate a lot of stuff and I've done some biographies and stuff and it's really hard, like history, like there's so much that gets lost. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. And I've had discussions uh, with my cousin about this because she studies like 16th century history and mm. just how it's archived by the people that archive it don't care about these things. And yeah. that's that's the biggest issue. And I wondered if, how you felt about that, you know, in reference, it seems like whoever gets to archive the history and write the textbooks, they just leave a lot of this out. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's only it, it's only told from right the perspective of white people so you know she is she is interesting as a figure who can be used for white political purposes so she's a symbol for pro-slavery she's a symbol for abolition she is not a woman she's not a person she doesn't get to speak she doesn't get to tell her own story you know which you already mentioned cat like that's mm -hmm. she's displaced from her own narrative uh, in a lot of ways so that, yeah, I mean, that, that happens all of the time. And it's incredibly frustrating um, to, I think for researchers to, to have to try to read between the lines and put together these narratives, you know, when you can find a diary from someone at a time and then be like, oh, okay, all right, maybe these elements are, you know, can be placed into the story to help fill out that kind of everyday life and the sets of questions that people ask. Um, Octavia Butler spent a lot of time researching Kindred. Uh, it was probably, I mean, she did, she did so much research. The archives, the Octavia Butler archives of the Huntington Library are like, I want to say it's 385 boxes with 6,000 plus items Ooh, wow. wow and each of the and the items can can be doing multiple things like she saved uh little slips of paper that she got 
that, you know, maybe she went to a convention and saw people were advertising this like Star Trek fan club. She took a bunch of flips. Of- she published Survivor um, and it was the only one of her books that she never allowed to be republished. Um, when she sent it, sort of sent the, the final draft in, she didn't feel like it was ready. She didn't like the story. She wasn't happy with it. Um, but she needed money to go do this this book, Kindred. She needed to be able to get from California to to Maryland to get to the archives. It's she had this vision and she wanted she wanted to do that. So it was her first big research trip, and she funded it through um, through the money from Survivor. So, but when and when she was there, she you know went to a bunch of the different archives and she did a bunch of library research, and she was also when you see the the materials that she found, it's so frustrating because none of the life of the characters are in it. You can see, you can really sense how much she had to bring to each of these characters from her own imagination, her own kind of mm-hmm. lived experience, and then put fill out each of those characters because none of that is in this, you know, plantation map. <laughs> like, right. like, oh yeah like uh none of that is in like this list of this list of people who had lived there you know by their first name and maybe their age or you know any of those small details she had to kind of find for herself it's impressive yeah yeah it, it kind of reminds me just piecing together the lives of the slaves on different plantations like so my background is in anthropology so um, I remember one of my professors, one, one of their associates, it wasn't them, they were doing excavation on what had been the slave quarters area. They found a false wall and behind that wall, once they took it out, was all this beautifully preserved rat nests. And the reason why they're excited about rat nests, if for those who don't know, rats have a great way of preserving everything with their own urine, mm-hmm. but by that, they're never going to deteriorate. So finding rat nests is yeah. excellent because they found hair, combs, toys, books, anything that would wow. have been in that building wow. they collected. And there were about five nests. So it was one of those really lucky finds if you're into urban excavation. So, um, but it fills wow. in the stories of all these people that lived because uh, otherwise mm-hmm. we, we don't get that information. Um, unfortunately, I know there's the saying that history's written by the winners and yeah. um, it, it unfortunately we don't have a lot of people's just their entire life experiences Mm -hmm. or they were burned like um i know we've talked about it before with the aztecs and the mayans their codex were burned by spanish Mm -hmm. so we don't know a lot we still don't know all of them i think it's uh aztec we don't we don't know how to pronounce it we don't know how to read all of it yeah and mayan only exists as a language because it was preserved orally through uh, the community so yeah yeah, yeah that's amazing is mm-hmm. there anything um like uh, if people want to read more you you gave us some links to articles are there some good books that you'd suggest yeah yeah um i read uh 
there's a couple one is um by steven weisenberger called modern medea that's all about margaret garner um that's Mm -hmm. 1999 that one came out um and some of it is available through google books you know if you want to preview it you can read some of it there um i got uh nikki m taylor's frontiers of freedom cincinnati's black community 1802 to 1868 um i got that locally at the harriet beecher stowe house but that's available you know kind of anywhere you buy books um i she wrote another book in 2016 that's also all about margaret garner called driven towards madness the fugitive slave margaret garner and tragedy on the ohio and that talks about margaret garner's life but also the ways that she's picked up and used you know as as a symbol so i think that would be really interesting to kind of add to the mix Mm. yeah yeah that would be um because one one thing we were talking about is the untold stories like how many people might have done what she did too that we just don't know about yeah right yeah and there are definitely other stories of women um yeah committing infanticide rather than yeah do we know if margaret she was pregnant right when she was arrested did she Mm -hmm. ever have that baby do we know what happened there i'm assuming she did i didn't uh like i said the i i didn't um in my research i did not find out much beyond um the case and the end of the Mm -hmm. you know the end of that sort of tragic case but um, since she died in 1858 and she didn't die in pregnant, like during, you know, childbirth, right. I'm assuming that she had, she, had she did have the baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what can people do to help that, like tell the story of like to make history? I mean, it's never going to be perfect, but to make it more accurate. So more people know sort of the history and where to move on and make, you know, uh, make it a i want to say it sounds very maybe it is my fascination with science fiction make it a better world like what is it that we can do (laughs) that everybody can do to try to encourage you know i mean you know i work somewhat in education you know doing um illustration for textbooks and stuff like that but how can we what what can we do to improve Hmm. things and make them more accurate i know that's a giant question yeah that's a big question but i do have a couple i do have a couple ideas i mean i think we've kind of touched on some of them i mean certainly part of it involves um thoughtful representation you know so not just plunking down uh you know 80s style uh, a black character in the middle of of whatever this white action and yeah we don't know anything about them they never have any other black friends they don't have you know they don't have any real interior life and they die right away you know so oh. instead of just sort of draping your white character in uh you know black skin or something mm-hmm. doing you know doing a little bit of um, research or collaboration where you know you can to kind of make sure it's a more accurate depiction of life I think that's um, and that can happen you know that can happen in all in all areas of storytelling and mm-hmm. you know uh, one of the things that I love so 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 much about Black Panther is that it incorporates these all of these different um, looks and styles that are both futuristic, but also very much rooted in various like African traditional clothing styles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, um, 
that looking at those kinds of ways to tell story and to inform characters, I think is, is a way to make that work. And that makes, that makes history and culture more appealing too. you mm-hmm. know, um, if it's even, uh, you know, if it's just sort of like physically beautiful, um, in other ways, I kind of wish that, um, I don't know. It's such a, it's such a hard, it's such a hard thing to do, but I, I guess I wish that stories happened, like that stories were shared without it having to be a sort of very special episode, you know, if it like just happened more naturally, um, that, but you know, you got to start somewhere. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so that's, that's a thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's it. It's a hard question. It's a lot. It's a lot. I hadn't planned to answer how to save the world tonight, but <laughs> Sorry. I, that's a hard one. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. think about it and I'll yeah, get back to you. Think. We'll do an episode yeah. about how to make it a better world. Yeah. That will be another very special episode. Yes, I always say that I'm ready. Just, by the way. I'm ready. Well, you Every know, I, I kind of like to see, and that's I think it brings it back kind of to Star Trek, which you know, I, I'm not sure how you know how these two topics uh merge but but you know the thing i liked about star trek was rather than being a dystopian future it was something that was like well, what if you know people yeah. did try to make it a better world and and you know ex- exploration and stuff now you know it's an imperfect lens for sure, sure. Mm-hmm. um but you know in an era where a lot of science fiction is sort of obsessed with I want to call it like apocalyptic porn. Like it's oh, like, yeah. like they mm-hmm. like to see the world torn down and stuff rather than, you know, you know, what, what could we do to, so I, I think that that's one thing that's pervaded the pop culture to the point where it's like, people want to tear stuff down, but no one ever talks about, well, how do you build it up? Like, what does mm-hmm. it look like if the world is better? Like if, if yeah. things are fairer and people are b- better treated, you know, how can we get from there, from here, where it's not that way to there? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we get to that Star Trek future? Yeah. And, and yeah. You know, that's 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 what I've always wanted. I mean, my background is industrial design, so I, I always have mm. thought about what would things look like in the future and be like in the future, and mm-hmm. and and that's yeah, that's one of my favorite things. And and it seems like it's it's a possibility, but it seems like you know, and and that's we're bringing into modern days. Um, uh, one one of the you know if you read old political cartoons like you were talking about the news and mm. one thing i thought was interesting have you ever been up to the billy ireland museum up in um columbus no it's a, a cartoon museum it's it's a oh. giant it's affiliated with ohio, ohio state and one thing that's interesting is to look at political cartoons from the 1800s and mm. the most depressing thing is how little has changed Ugh. yeah mm. yeah yeah. You know, the things people are fighting about, like you said, conservative papers and stuff or what they were saying, you know, uh, you know, pick your period in history and the arguments they make are always, you know, it feels like, have we made no progress? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. would say to um, a story that I can think of immediately that begins to paint a picture of a bright future Um that also comes from very like non-white space is uh, Nettie Okorafor's Binti trilogy. Okay. B-I-N-T-I. B-I-N-T-I. Okay. B-I-N-T-I. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's the story of a young um, woman from a specific ethnic group in Africa, and the name is evading me right now, but it's a group of people who paint their skin with um, bright red clay. Oh. And uh, she goes, she's a very first Hausa, maybe? No, I don't think it's Hausa. Anyway, she is like the very first person from her group to leave the planet. Um, her family absolutely does not want her to go. They're very much connected to the earth, um, you know, as sort of evidenced by this, this clay they paint themselves with. And she has to take some with her uh, to go, but she wants to go to this um, intergalactic university. Um, and so she, she ends up traveling with her and like the idea that she has to bring the earth with her um, and move as the very first person of this, this specific group in this college, she's facing all of these different, you know, hurdles, but she also has all of these mathematical gifts that other people would sort of dismiss, like her, um, her hair braids reflect fractal patterns. Um, so, you know, these kinds of things that people would just sort of look at as being simply decorate, like, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Decorative. Just bodily, yeah, decorative, just bodily yeah. decoration, you know, like just sort of just cosmetic. Is, mm -hmm. Yeah, superficial, that they actually hold um, important cultural and scientific meaning at the same time. And that, uh, you know, so that's, there's that kind of future that has us kind of facing some of the same problems we're looking at now, but also in a totally different way, you know, hey, we've gotten off the planet and we have mm -hmm. this really interesting intergalactic university where people from, you know, all over the, the, the galaxy are coming together to, to learn and share their cultures and lives, which is kind of but is there anything you'd like to say in closing and then Kat will do the outro? Uh, oh, okay. Not just just as spot. a, <laughs> no, no, no. Just as a <laughs> random aside that it was something I was thinking about while I was talking, but didn't um, mention it. There is a video. Um, I'll send you the link. It's like about, it's Ron is a TED talk, which I kind of hate TED talks, but this one I really like um i think we all feel the same way yeah yeah it's a uh, it's it's ron eglash uh talking about the fractals at the heart of african design and he's a mathematician but he talks about fractal patterns um in african villages and how this particular kind of uh, form of mathematics is passed on through through religion which is interesting as a way of like preserving and passing on uh, information, but also thinking about like, you know, that question of hair braiding as a fractal pattern mm -hmm. and the ways that um, this is kind of something I talk about in my book, but how, how science, you know, when it's coming from this kind of white perspective can really diminish the contributions of other groups of people. And I think this is a, a fun talk that gets at that idea a lot. That'd be great. Yeah. We'll put well, a link to the good. show notes. Yeah. It sounds really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. I, I'm interested because I've looked at sacred geometry so i'd be interested oh. to see how he layers it thank you for joining us tonight for another wonderful episode of the cincinnati cabinet of curiosities presents the hometown haunts podcast i'm your host kat cloco along with me jen kohler and christina wald and our special guest 
Dr. Chris Cassandra Jones. If you would like to follow us, you can find us at Sin Cabinet Curio on Twitter, at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And if you'd like to share your own personal ghost stories, urban legends, or creepy creatures from your own hometown, you can send those to hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com. Have a great week and stay curious, everyone.